Do you want to know what God's will is for your life? I'll take it most of us here would say yes, wouldn't we? Uh, If we knew God's will, wouldn't it be so much easier? We wouldn't have to stress out about all those decisions. What job to take, where to send the kids for their education, who we should marry, which house to rent, which church to go to, which car, which course. If only we knew God's will, it would be so much simpler. And yet, finding God's will seems to be so difficult. If only God would reveal his will more clearly. Don't you wish that? Now, in the verses that we're looking at today, the Apostle Paul tells the Colossian Christians that he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And then he shows them what the purpose of knowing God's will is. And in doing that, he helps them to understand God's will for their lives and for us. And so as we look at his prayer today, we're beginning to engage this part of God's word we'll discover not only a model for praying ourselves, for ourselves and for each other, but also a way of understanding the will of God for our lives. Before we look at the content of his prayer, let's remind ourselves of the context uh, which we looked at last week. The Apostle Paul had never been to Colossae, but he had spent a considerable time at Ephesus, about 200 kilometers away. And after Oh, about eight years before this letter was written, one of his colleagues at Ephesus had taken the gospel to this town, right, which is now part of Turkey. More recently, Paul had heard news about the Colossians. He heard about their faith in Jesus Christ, or their faithfulness to Jesus Christ, and their love for God's people, the saints. He was excited for the way the gospel was bearing fruit among them, uh, causing them to exhibit these things. And this positive news drove Paul to prayer. And so have a look at me at the end of verse 9. He says, from the day we heard of this, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. When he heard, they heard of their faithfulness, he heard of their love, and, they, and he prayed for them. See, Paul didn't just pray for people when he got bad news. I didn't just pray when there's a pastoral emergency. Heard of their faith and love, and in response, he prayed for them. Saw God had been working among them, and he asked for more. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? And it's all the more remarkable when we realize that he doesn't even know these people personally. He's heard about them second hand. They were indirect products of his ministry, and yet they are in his prayers. And that's a great example to us, isn't it? Many of us pray for our own families, our own church, our own country, things and people who are close to us. But Paul is praying here even for people that he doesn't know. And he says he prays continually, we have not ceased to pray for you. Doesn't mean he's going all the time, you know, thinking and praying for them, like all the time, you know, like he doesn't have any time to eat or sleep or go to the toilet or anything like that. He's just praying for the Colossians. It doesn't mean that he's like always praying for them in some way, you know, as he does something else, it means they haven't dropped off his prayer list. Okay? He hasn't ceased to pray for them. He keeps praying for them. He right? doesn't say how often he prays for them. Maybe three times a day, maybe once a week. But whatever it is, he prays for them regularly. And he hasn't stopped this practice. And wouldn't it be good, isn't it, brothers and sisters, if 
if we could make a habit of praying for some other congregation or ministry or missionary or group or something regularly that's not directly benefiting us. Uh, we do it in our corporate prayers at church. That's great. But wouldn't it be great if we did it privately as well? Uh, of course we have to pray for our own families. Of course we have to pray for our own church. Of course we have to pray for our own country. But it would be great if we could even broaden our horizons and just pray regularly for someone or something else just because they are in Christ and working for his gospel. Now, how we pray for people shows us what we think is important for them. If we think their health is important, then we will pray regularly for their health. If we think their finances are important, then we will pray regularly for their finances. If we think their godliness is important, then we will pray regularly for their godliness. Now, of course, we might think that godliness is important, but we still pray for their health as well, because they're ill. Another story. We might think their health is important, but still pray for their finances, because they're going through a rough patch. But what's our priorities in our praying? What are the main things that we should pray about? when we pray for people. When Paul prayed for the Colossians, his priorities were very clear. His prayer in the second half of verse 9 is simply this. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The thing that Paul wanted to pray for, for these people in Colossae, was that they would know God's will. He wanted God's will to dominate their lives, their living, their priority, their decision making. He wants them to have true spiritual insight, to understand things from God's perspective, not just human ones. And why does he want them to know God's will? Well, verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. The purpose of knowing God's will is in order to please him. That's his will. That's what God wanted for the Colossians. That's what God wants from us. To live our lives, to walk day by day, step by step, in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Surely it's not something that we can do to make ourselves worthy of him, in the sense that we deserve him. Right? We've rebelled against him because of our sin. What we deserve is, is, is death and hell. And yet in God's mercy, what he gave us, well, he gave us what we don't deserve. It's forgiveness and Jesus, through Jesus' death in our place. God chose us to be recipients of that forgiveness even before we were born, before the world was created, before the beginning of time. Nothing we can do to become deserving of that. And God has a future for us in Christ that where we are in fellowship with him and each other more glorious than we could ever dream. We don't deserve that. When Paul talks about in a manner worthy of the Lord, the word worthy can also be translated suitably. Right, suitably. That is, we're called to live a life that, not that, that deserves the Lord, but a suitable life given the fact that we belong to him. Does that make sense? Right, a manner consistent 
with, with who we are. It's like, if you're in the police force, then, then you need to act in a certain way. Right? If you're a guy, you need to have your hair cut short. Uh, you need to wear your uniform when you're on duty. And when you're in uniform, you can't just you know, unbutton your shirt and wear it hanging out, that kind of thing. Right? Uh, you can't just go to sleep on the side of the road if you're feeling tired. Because you have to act in a way that is consistent with who you are as a member of the police force. Certain expectations come with your position. Now, as Christians, we are to live a life, we are to walk a walk that is suitable to who we are in Christ. And Paul prays that the Colossians be filled with the knowledge of God's will so they may live that way. way that is fully pleasing to God. And as Christians, that's what we want to do, don't we? We want to please God. The desire of our hearts above everything else is to please our Heavenly Father. We want Jesus to say on the last day, well done, good and faithful servant. And we know it really doesn't matter if no one else thinks we've done well. It doesn't matter if everyone else, if everyone else thinks we've done well. Our real audience is one. And we want to please Him. A suitable response to all that Christ has done for us is to walk worthy of Him, to seek to please Him in every way. So Paul prays the Colossians will be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that they would know how to do that. So they'd be able to live a life that is worthy of the Lord, that is suitable, that is pleasing to Him. And what kind of life, what does this look like? What, what characterizes a life that pleases God? What is a life that is in God's will? Well, Paul gives four descriptions, four characteristics. And one long sentence that we find in verses 10 to 12. That's broken up for us here. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. What does that look like? Well, last part of verse 10. Bearing fruit in every good work. And the even further part of verse 10. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power. And verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. Those are the four characteristics that we find here of a life that pleases God. A life that bears fruit in every good work, that increases in the knowledge of God, that is being strengthened with all power for endurance and patience, and is thankful to the Father. Let's look at these in turn. The first characteristic of a God-pleasing life is a life that bears fruit in every good work. Bears fruit. Now, Jesus said, remember Jesus in uh, John's Gospel, He says, if you abide in Me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from Me you can do nothing, He says. Uh, Paul tells us in Galatians that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. If we remain in Christ, if the Spirit is leading us, then this produces fruit of these good works, these characteristics. These things won't save us, of course. They won't even help us to get saved. But true faith in Christ alone to save us will always result in good works in being compassionate and kind and merciful to those in need, like our Heavenly Father is to us. 
in godly attitudes to those in authority over us, in holy living, in, in shunning idolatry, in greed, in sexual immorality, in getting rid of anger and wrath and slander and malice and abusive language and lying, in treating each other with humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness and peace and above all love. God-pleasing life is a life that bears fruit in every good work. Like the Colossians, whose faithfulness and love Paul had heard about and wrote this letter. God's will is that we should bear fruit. It's the first and foremost thing. That our characters uh, should be like this. Well, secondly, a person who pleases God is someone who is growing in knowledge of God. Okay? As Christians, we're never meant to be at a standstill. Now, Paul never says, okay, God wants you to have this much knowledge, and then, that, you know, then you're, that's it, that's okay. We, we've never arrived. God wants us to increase in our knowledge of Him. You might have been a Christian for many years. You might have heard many sermons and done Bible studies all your life. You might have you know, been whizzing through the, the more College Correspondence course. God wants you to be growing in knowledge of Him. On the other hand, you may know nothing at all, except that you are a sinner and Jesus is your Savior. God wants you to be growing in knowledge of Him. doesn't matter where we are. We all need to keep growing. That's important. We're going to grow. How do we grow in knowledge of God? Let's say you're a young lady and you decided that Sam in the green shirt at the back there was kind of cute. Right? And you want to get to know him better. So what would you do? Well, you could go and ask someone else about him. You could do an internet search for his web page and probably don't have one. Oh, he might. Look and see. You could speak to someone else who knows him well. But if you really want to get to know Sam, then you better try and get a conversation with him, wouldn't you? You go listen to him. Let him speak to you directly. Talk to him. And listen to what he says. Because as he speaks, he reveals himself to you. Tells you who he is. Find out what he's like. Discover what he likes and he doesn't like. You work out his plans, his goals, his hopes, his dreams. And you come to know him better and better as you hear him more. And friends, it's the same with God. God speaks to us in his word. He speaks to us. He tells us what he's like and what he's done. He tells us his plans and purposes for the world. Tells us what is pleasing to him. How we should live our lives. If you want to know God better, then you listen to his word. Receive it in faith. and Read his word. Study it yourself or in a group. Listen carefully when it's preached. Absorb yourself in it. And never think that you've made it. Every week I'm learning more and more things from God's Word. And I'm sure that can be the case for all of us. As you understand the Bible more and more, you will know God better and better. And the Lord is pleased as we grow in our knowledge of Him. God's will for us is that we get to know Him better. The third thing that the Holy Spirit tells us through Paul here about the life that pleases God is that it is, verse 11, 
strengthened with all power. Now, it's actually a passive word. It is being strengthened with all power. It's not an active one. Right? The person it describes is not strengthening themselves. God is strengthening them. Now, when you and I think about being strengthened with power, we tend to think about the dramatic, don't we? Right? Wow, being strengthened with power, you know, I'm going to go and do wonderful things. And just, they're going to do... Right? But here Paul is talking about a very different kind of power. Look at, it carefully. Look at the power he's talking about. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For what? For all endurance and patience with joy. See, the power he's talking about here is a power to be faithful in the midst of persecution, in the midst of difficulties. Power to keep on believing when the whole world caves in around you. Power to keep on trusting God when things seem so bad. Power to endure suffering patiently now as we wait for the glory that will come when the Lord returns. Power to be God's faithful soldier and servant to your life's end. The God-pleasing life is not a life that's marked by freedom from suffering and pain. But it is a life that is marked by patient endurance in the midst of it. So friends, when we go through hard times, it doesn't mean that we are out of God's will. Hmm? We mustn't think that if everything's going well, then we must be doing God's will. If everything's not going well, then somehow or other we're not. God's will for us is that we should endure patiently whatever he allows to come in our way. As we do, we bring glory to him who strengthens us to do that. It's God's strength. Finally, the God-pleasing life is marked by thankfulness. Verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. God has qualified us to share the inheritance of the saints. What, well, what does that mean? Well, when God first gave the land of Canaan to his people Israel, it was considered their inheritance. That's what God gave them. Right? With the inheritance of the different tribes, they had to share it and divide it up. But remember, Israel lost her inheritance through disobedience. They were kicked out of the land, which was their inheritance, and they went into exile. But remember our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 60. It was written to Israel in exile. Darkness covered the land and the people. People in the world didn't know God. They were far away from Him. And God's people, they were in Babylon, far away from Him. And Isaiah said in the prophecy, look, the exile is going to be over. Your light will come. The glory of God will rise on you. And when that happens, God Himself will be your light. The days of sorrow will end. All your people will be righteousness. Nations will be drawn to the light that is in you. See, this new inheritance is a kingdom of light. A place where God rules, where sin is gone, where God's glory is seen in all its fullness. And brothers and sisters, we see here that God in verse 12 has qualified us to share in that inheritance of the saints in light. 
we have a part of that new inheritance. An inheritance in the new heaven, a new earth, the home of the righteous. An inheritance that will last forever, kept in heaven for us. An inheritance that can never spoil or fade. No matter how many wars we go through, no matter what the economy does, no matter what happens in our families, in our workplaces, in our world, that is our treasure, that is our inheritance. No one can take it away from us because God has qualified us to share in that inheritance. He has qualified us and we are thankful. How did He qualify us? Verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. He qualified us for that inheritance by transferring us into His kingdom. He's moved us from one kingdom to another. Because we are all by nature in the kingdom of darkness, under the influence and control of sin, and running our lives our own way without God, and following the devil in his rebellion, and, 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 and heading for God's judgment. In the kingdom of darkness. And then he says in verse 10, He has delivered us, He has saved us, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, from the kingdom of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. He has placed us under a new king, the Lord Jesus. And under that king, everything is different. In verse 14, in him, in whom, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In this kingdom, in this king, we have redemption. Redemption means we are rescued through the paying of a price. A costly price for the taking away of our sins. A price that was paid in full of the cross. Our sins, which would have placed us under God's condemnation, were, were placed on the king as he hung there for us. and He took the punishment for us, and so in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So no wonder the Christian life is marked by thankfulness. We have been moved from one kingdom to another, and therefore qualified to receive the glorious inheritance of the saints in life. No matter what, friends, we have so much to be thankful for. And God's will is that we be thankful. And that we be a people who are characterized by thankfulness. Because, see, no matter what happens, no matter what happens in this world and in our lives, there is always something we can be thankful for, and that is that. There's always that. And that is far bigger than anything else. So, let's think about that question again. Do you want to know God's will for your life? Well, God's will for your life is that you should live your life to please Him. And what does that look like? You'll be bearing fruit in every good work. You'll be growing to know Him better and better. You'll be strengthened in His power to endure to the end. And you'll always be thankful to what God has done for what God has done for you in Christ. You see, those four things, the things that God is really concerned about, that is, that is his, those are His priorities. That is what He actually wants to see in our lives. Now, you and I, we, we tend to agonize over the wrong things, don't we? The house, the job, the car, the choice of partner, the, the plans, the education. Those things don't matter so much. 
Of course they matter at one level, and of course it's hard, and of course we need to make difficult decisions about them, and of course we want to pray that God would give us wisdom as we do. But those things don't matter as much as these. These are the things that really matter. God hasn't given us detailed instructions about what we do in many of those areas. He may, but he usually doesn't. But it's okay, because we can see them in perspective. See, those don't matter so much in themselves, as long as they fit in under those four things which really are important. And they matter in so much as they help us or hinder us from, from doing what really is God's will. Let me try and apply that to a couple of examples in terms of decision making. Uh, marriage and work. Christians are always trying to work out, well, Christians who are not married are always trying to work out God's will for who we are to be married to. All right? Those of us who are already married, God's will is abundantly clear, isn't it? All right? God wants us to be married to our husband or our wife. No problems there. But for the benefit of the single people here, let's just talk for a moment about choosing a marriage partner. When it comes to marriage, right, God has already told us who we can marry. Marry someone of the opposite sex. Marry a Christian who is godly, growing in godliness, who is not your blood relative, and who is not already married to someone else. Now, if someone doesn't fit those criteria, we know for sure that it's not God's will for to, us to marry them. But then that doesn't necessarily narrow down the field too much, does it? Um, well, look at this passage. What is God's will for us? We've seen the four things that God really wants for us, so we apply them when we're choosing a marriage partner. Marry someone who will help us bear fruit. Marry someone who will help us increase in the knowledge of God. Or increase together in the knowledge of God. Marry someone who is also being strengthened together with us to face difficulties and persecutions, who will be willing to be strengthened to do that. Marry someone who will join us in giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints by delivering us from the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. If you're thinking about marrying someone, and they're not going to help with those things, and they're going to be a hindrance to those things, then, then don't marry them. It is better not to be married. If they are, and they fulfill the other criteria we spoke just now, then you marrying them, you'll find you're fulfilling God's will as you marry them. Now, there may be a number of people who fit this criteria. There may be none, but there may be a number. And if that's the case, then great. God has given us a freedom. Right? There's more than one lane in the highway of God's will. See if one of them is interested in you, and if you're interested in any of them. Because I personally think, and this is just my opinion, but I personally think it's generally wise to marry someone you like. <laughs> and someone who happens to like you. But make sure that they fit the other criteria, don't you? I mean, if you find someone who fits all the criteria, pray for the wisdom, consider the pros and cons, go for it. Don't wait for God to say to you specifically whether you should marry Akao or Ramasami. Right? 
He may. But he never promised to. And he doesn't usually, and he probably won't. Because God, what God is far more interested in is the kind of husband or wife that he has told you he wants you to be and the kind of husband or wife that he told you he wants you to have. One who bears fruit in every good work, who increases the knowledge of God, who is being strengthened with all power for endurance and patience, and who is giving thanks to God for what he's done for us in Christ. Now, let me say, that does not guarantee that you are going to have a happy, fulfilled, problem-free marriage. Because that's what we're always asked. When we say, what do we want, what is God's will? We're actually saying, okay, God, if you tell me who I'm going to marry so I won't have any problems, then would that be good? That would be really good, wouldn't it? But that's not. What God wants for us is that we grow in holiness. That we become more like Jesus in our characters. That we learn to bear fruit. That we are patient in endurance by his strength. Think about work. If you have a choice, in some places you don't have a choice, but if you have a choice, what kind of work do you do? What kind of business do you have? Well, look for a job that pleases God. There are some jobs we know won't please God. Right? If you're going to be a crook, or a pimp, or a drug dealer, right, that's not going to be pleasing to God. Right? So, don't do that job. There are many jobs that are not like that. What do you look for next? Look towards bearing fruit. Showing love and faithfulness. Consider your work, consider your family, consider your friends, consider your church. Will my taking this job or doing this business enhance my love and faithfulness? Will enable me to serve others? Taking into account all the different contexts that God has placed me in? Will it detract from it? Will it be neutral? Look towards growing in knowing God. Will my job be so demanding that I don't have any time or energy left for growing in my knowledge of God? Look toward endurance with patience. The fact that your job is tough or you're going through hard times at work doesn't necessarily mean it's a mistake. God may be teaching you valuable lessons there. But remember God's priority, God's goals, His criteria for success is not career advancement or business expansion because what God is interested in is godliness bearing fruit patient endurance in the midst of whatever he sends our way it's a different way of thinking look toward thankfulness because remember no matter what happens at work we are thankful for something far more important the inheritance that God has qualified us to, 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 to receive far outweighs it all. Right? No matter what bonuses you get, you can't match that. So we need to keep it all in perspective. There may be different jobs we can do for the glory of God, which are suitable, given the above factors. Maybe have a number of different jobs that might be possible, that might be suitable. Different lanes and walking in the highway of God's will. That point doesn't matter what job we do. As long as it's decent and honest and it's useful to others, we'll glorify God. What is important is how we do it. God's will for us is not so much that, you know, 
we join this company or join that company, but that we should bear fruit in the companies we join. That we should be honest and loving and faithful. And that it's not so heavy that we don't have time to love other people and grow in knowledge of God ourselves. So friends, whatever our decisions, whatever our circumstances, God's priority and our priority is first and foremost to be godly. To be bearing fruit. And we can only know this. Sorry, and we know that this can only come as a result of God's work in our lives. Right, so we have to pray. Pray that we would know God's will. Which brings us back to the beginning of the sermon, isn't it? We pray for ourselves. We pray for others. We need to pray following Paul's example. And to keep praying for each other. Praying for our church. Pray for those we don't even know. And pray without ceasing. Pray with God's priorities in mind. Pray that we and the people we pray for will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That in the midst of this world with very different agendas and priorities, this this God-pleasing life would dominate our thinking and theirs. That we and they would have the spiritual wisdom and understanding to see that living to please Jesus is what life is really all about. That we would live lives worthy of the Lord bearing fruit in every good work increasing in our knowledge of God being strengthened with his power to endure and always being thankful for his grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ let's pray for that now Heavenly Father, we we thank you that you have saved us, that you have qualified us for that inheritance in the kingdom of light that we could never earn or deserve. Father, we thank you that through Jesus you have have given us that. And we pray that we would always be thankful for it. Our hearts would always be grateful to you and soft to you. And we pray that we would be people who, in response to what you've done for us, uh, seek to live our lives to please you. Our Father, we pray that that would be the case. And that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will. That we might live our lives in a way that's pleasing to you. That we would indeed be bearing fruit in every good work that we may be showing your love and your faithfulness and your compassion and your kindness to those around us. And that the fruit of your Spirit would be the characteristics more and more of our lives. Please continue to change as we pray that that would be the case. We pray that we would be increasing in our knowledge of you. That we would be getting to know you better in your word. As you reveal yourself to us there. Please help me, Father. Help us never to arrive or think we've arrived. But to keep on growing and keep on hungering to know you more. Our Father, we 
we pray that you would strengthen us with power to endure whatever it is uh, that is set on our way. Father, if there are good times, we pray that we would endure that uh, because there are many temptations that come with good times. That was to keep fixed on our Jesus. When we come across bad times, we pray that you help us to endure that. Knowing that the temptation is to, to give up and to fall away. Strengthen us with all power, we pray. And Father, we pray once again that you'll keep us thankful for what you've done for us in the past and what you'll do for us in the future. Make us a people dominated by thankfulness. And Father, we pray uh, that in whatever areas of life, um, whatever happens in our families, in our workplace, in our friends, in our relationships, and in all the things that go on around us, uh, that we would be secure in you and in your faithfulness, uh, and that we would be living lives that please you. And we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.